You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Professor David Kirk Philp, along with your Dr. Esteban Marconi. And he is making things rock today. We are going to have Jason Davis on, who is one of those multi-guys. He's got uh, 27 different hyphens next to what he does for a living in the music industry. All of it is very relevant to what we're going to talk about today. And just before we went on, he sent me an email and it had something else that he does at the bottom of his email. So we'll have to ask him about that as well. Ah, but right. Successful. Very successful. We should, uh, I'm expecting to get good things from this. So um, go to musicbiz101wp.com. Sign up for that newsletter of ours to find out every time we have a new radio show. You can also follow us at musicbiz101wp. Instagram, the Twitter, the Botch Book, the podcast, of course, of course is on the iTunes and the SoundCloud. Should we give some thanks, Dr. Esteban? Please, let's do that. Let us give thanks to the folks at Bandai and Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Trez Doors Down, St. Vincent, and Kiss. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. <laughs> He's trying to say hyphen CPA. Dot com when you're ready. And, 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 Imas, we want to give gracias, give thanks to Christine. Oi. They, a wealth manager at the Forefront, F-O-U-R, Forefront Group. Christine has helped so many people. Yeah. Short people, men, women, all of them manage their investments, plan out for the retirement. When somebody like you is thinking of building a bridge to your financial future, somebody like you should think about a place like the Forefront Group and go to christine.oyvey at forefront.com. And leave the last oil off for savings. As you always should and always will. Yeah. In your band, seventh edition, it l- looks like 2021 is going to happen, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. That should happen. And then also the University of William Patterson, William Patterson University, a former college, formerly Patterson Teachers College, if we're 1958. Uh, that has been named one of the best music business programs in the United States of America, has it not, Dr. Esteban? Yes, it has. I believe it was 1999. That it became a university? Yes. From a college. Correct. Wonderful way for uh, this is the fourth time we've had this designation, fourth time in the last six years, I believe. And what a wonderful way to cap off your uh, being the boss of the program. And that's what it's on your door. Yeah, boss, owner of the program since 1984. So that's the years of you being the chief, the leader, El Capitan. See, see, formerly music, and I'm, and I'm relinquishing the throne. 
You are. In the rain. And it's man be all trades. Mm -hmm. All trades, he's going to be wearing so many hats, he won't need a haircut for a year. <laughs> because of the hats. Yes, he will be head of pop. He will be head of the music management. He will be overseeing all the adjuncts. He'll be overseeing three programs because we have the MEI and the Mass MBA programs and the MM program and the pop program. Jesus, if he gets sick, that department <laughs> is going to come to a halt, a total halt. So um, he'll learn pretty quickly that he can't volunteer anymore. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And I right. guess that's why on these Zoom calls, we're both wearing masks, just so I don't get sick, so I can. Yeah, that's right. Maybe we should have our masks on. I know, because you don't know what's going to go through the internet. You just don't know. Yeah, that's true. The internet is a very, very complicated communication system. Very porous. So, yeah, so we're glad you're on and glad you're safe. Yeah, m m many, many, many uh, years ago, I was, I'm 46 now, so I believe I was, uh, I think I was 22, mm -hmm. or no, I, I was, yeah, 21 or 22, I was a store manager for a, a store, and I think it was called, I could be wrong on this, it's been so long, but I think it was called like, Man, I know I'm messing up the name of the mall. It was like a really high-end mall, like ah. super high-end, small mall in Bergen County. Um, so it might have been uh, Riverside Mall. Yeah, Riverside Square. Is that in it? Hackensack? Yeah, yeah, right on Route Four. Yeah, yeah and it's it's kind of a small mall, right? But it's yeah. like very high-end. Now changed yeah, to almost all restaurants and uh, and galleries. Got it. I used to, I used to be a store manager of a music store. Which one? Uh, called called uh, The Wall. Well, Dave okay. called on many of those stores. Yeah, because I used to work for Polygram Records. And my first job oh, okay. business, I, I uh, would go to record stores, including there was a record world in that mall. I guess there was The Wall, but uh, I would hang up posters and do inventories. And I would go, Paramus was like a hub and had yeah. malls and all record stores in all the malls. And we had executives from Polygram lived everywhere. And so I had to do like a really kick-ass job because these executives on the weekends would go into the wall. And if I didn't have their priorities up, I would hear from it on the yeah. You know, this guy, you know, was in and, yeah. you know, what are you doing? No, what are you doing? You're wasting all, you know, all that kind of stuff, so. The good old days. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we looked at seven, uh, several of your videos, and it looks like uh, you started at about 12 years old. And, uh, I uh, got into the business at t 23. So it was, it was like a year after I was working at that record store. Right. But you did uh, get the bug as a songwriter? Well, I, don't, I, I started writing songs when I was, I mean, I wrote my first song when I was six. Uh, ah. Probably for my first band when I was like, literally like eight or nine years old. Uh, but first like real serious band, I was 13 and we started, we started writing a lot of songs back then. So I would say from the moment I started writing songs seriously to the moment I landed on a record, it was about nine to 10 years. So it's 23. And where was this? Well, I was living in, I was living in upstate New York at the time um wow. and i i didn't think it was possible to get into the music industry i i never thought of that because i didn't think that was a possibility mm -hmm. um so I, I was just working jobs and i i always wrote songs and recorded songs with friends and one of those songs without me knowing it traveled from person to person uh i guess a few different people and it landed on the desk of a record label in nashville next thing you know i got a phone call from a record label that wanted to put it on a record and uh, had a song come out. And, and it was the first single on that record. So it, it did very well. Um, and uh, that's kind of how it started. So. so from there, you just became basically a songwriter in Nashville? 
Well, New York. No, I mean, it was the the record label was out of Nashville, but I was living in upstate New York. Where were you living in upstate New York? I was living in New Paltz, New York. Uh And then I eventually moved shortly after that. I moved back to North Jersey to be closer to uh, New York City. That record label had taken a couple other songs I wrote and put it on records. Uh, And then then I realized I could do it. And um, I started literally cold calling record labels in New York City, begging for, you know, five minutes of their time, asking if I could play them a song. Um, And I started looking for artists to shop the labels. So you were a songwriter and then uh, you were doing uh, A&R or management? I I would say management. Um, I mean, I was trying to, I, I think part of developing projects and you know, getting artists that are truly shoppable and competitive. I mean, I think you do have to have some A&R ability. Um, and that, that ability has definitely grown over the 20 years. You know, I, I think I, I wanted to be, have an A&R's ability back then. Um, but it, my A&R ability was pretty limited. How did you then become successful enough where you were starting to get fed up with the industry? <laughs> what do you mean by fed up? Well, I mean, we would, we saw the video about 700 Club where you were actually uh, at a low point in your entire personal life. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, for me, I mean, just my personal journey, I didn't even know I could song start landing on records and then going on a journey of how do you get a label, the mm-hmm. sign an artist, how, how, how do you grow in the, and so excited and also so desperate to stay in the business that I, um, over the years, I turned a blind eye to a lot of a lot of things that were not mm-hmm. great, uh, just character things. And you know, especially, I don't know for some for some reason when I was in New York the first five years, I, I didn't really, you know, maybe I wasn't deep enough into the business, but I I didn't see a lot of like bad stuff. But once I moved to LA, I think you know I, I got more in inside that inner circle, and uh, especially with pop music and urban music and just managing artists and getting close to artists and getting close to how songs are getting on the radio and just radio promotion in general, um, how that worked. Um, you know, that, 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 that definitely left some, uh, you know, s- some scars, I would say, you know, so I, I think, I think I, I really never got fed up with the business cause I'm still in it, but thank, thankfully, but I think I just started to realize that I had a choice in the kinds of people I hung around and who I made my friends. And um, I started growing uh, more of a backbone and realizing like I didn't desperately need to like grab onto somebody's leg and make them my best friend when I met them. Um, You know, which was definitely more of what it felt like when I was first getting in. Did you have a mentor? I I never had one mentor. Uh, I definitely had a lot of people over the years speak into my life or speak into, you know, give me little pointers on the business or just right. meetings I would be in where I walk out of the meeting and say, okay, I just, I just think I learned something. Uh, there was tons of that over the years and still is to this day, but uh, um, never one mentor. No, which okay. definitely, which, which made it, made the journey a lot more difficult. Was uh, so was there one specific incident that sort of made you really, um, he totally fed up. Well, I'd say it was a series of events. Uh, the first event was I had just started managing. Uh, it was actually three events that happened in a few weeks when I was living in Los Angeles. Um, one was I was managing a new rapper that was very close to getting a record deal, and he would 100% gotten a record deal. And... Uh, starting to grow close to him, working with him a lot. Um, and he ended up getting shot and killed. Oh. So, I mean, I, you know, I grew up pretty sheltered. So all these types of things were not something that I would think were possible when you're getting into something you love. Yeah. So um, he got shot and killed. And then about a week later, uh, another rapper that I managed that was on J Records, which is 
Clive Davis's label through Sony. His tour manager that, you know, obviously worked underneath me, um, I guess had gotten pulled over in Chicago and had a trunk filled uh, with cocaine. And uh, I, did, I, I never knew. I, I didn't realize. And again, I grew up pretty sheltered and I was pretty naive. But uh, he got put away, I think, for something like 20 to 25 years in prison. Mm. Um, and that, that was a second phone call I got probably a week after the rapper had died. And then probably about a week after that, there was uh, a radio conference in the Bahamas uh, that another rapper I was managing was performing at. And uh, this rapper was signed to a producer deal. So I met the rapper through this producer. So the producer was kind of almost like the boss, you know, that obviously the label did the deal with the producer for the artist. And so um, the producer brought me on board to manage the artist. And the producer had hired a radio promotion guy that had just left Warner Music. Mm -hmm. And I I guess the producer and the radio promotion guy had come up with an idea to hire a couple of prostitutes in the Palmas and service a very large amount of radio people. Um, and uh, I, I thankfully, I was not there. Um, uh, looking back, I sh- probably should have been there as the manager, but thankfully I was not there. Uh, but um, I heard over that weekend that that thing that they had planned started and about halfway through it got shut down by hotel residents calling the police. Um, saying that there was a a long line of men waiting to get into this one hotel room. And uh, so on Monday, my phone rang and it was one of the, it was uh, the head of marketing, I believe. It was the head of marketing for Sony in New York. And when I picked up the phone and she was like, she was probably like in her forties. She was a mom you know, in her forties. And so when I picked up the phone and I heard her voice, I knew she was calling about that weekend. And I wanted to like, I, I wanted to basically crawl under my desk and, uh, you know, cause I, I just figured she was going to start yelling at me or saying, you guys are insane or, you know, you know, we're done with your artist or, and so as soon as I heard her voice, I got really tight and I was embracing for impact of what she was going to say to me. And she actually said these words to me, word for word. I'll never forget it. She said, Jason, you are probably, because, you know, obviously me being the manager, she she thought that, you know, I probably am orchestrating everything, which I wasn't. And she said, Jason, you are the most creative manager I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to congratulate you because this song is now on the tips, uh, on the lips of every single, you know, radio program director and DJ that was at, at the conference. Everybody's talking about the song and, and basically you're a genius. And um, I hung up the phone and I was just, just had a moment where I was thinking to myself in my office in Los Angeles, I was like, what am I involved in? Like, this is crazy, you know? And it, it, it was a, those sequences that happened probably over three weeks, maybe four weeks that really made me take a very, very serious pause and just start asking some deeper questions. It was no longer a matter of like, can I somehow get into this or can I somehow survive in this business? Can I somehow keep doing it? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to go backwards. It, it became less of a desperate thing and more, okay, I'm really in the business now and I really know a lot of people and, you know, what am I doing? Like, what's my purpose? Like, you know, it started making me ask some very deep questions. What are you excited about now and what actually are you doing presently Uh, with this virus? Uh, Well, with the virus, uh, I mean, there have been some tours that, you know, for artists I manage that have been canceled. 
um, or shows getting canceled. And some of those tours were, were pretty big. Um, one tour in particular was a pretty big arena tour and uh, th there was a lot more dates left. And so, uh, you know, financially that, that wasn't great, but thankfully, thankfully these days, the artists that I do work really closely with are managed. They're very, very good with their money. Um, artists I used to work with in the past weren't, um, right. and I probably was not as good as guiding them, you know, at guiding them back then. But thankfully, everybody I work with is pretty well set up to weather the storm. Um, and, uh, you know, a few of the artists I'm working with wouldn't have to play another show for the rest of the year and they'd, they'd be okay. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, I think we should, we should be in okay shape there, but I, I, I mean, I, I'm really doing the same thing that I've almost always done. Um, always looking for artists. I love working with artists. I mean, I think my, the bullseye of my heart uh, musically is really being very involved in artists' life, lives. Um, I love watching artists grow. I love helping artists become better at their craft. Um, even, even if an artist is signed, um and i'm managing them i still love the coaching and teaching and torturing of details aspect of it um so i think you know the the bullseye for me is really working closely with artists and that's something that i really have been doing ever since i would say my first six to nine months in the music business when i first started so um and, and i do obviously as a I think I also love working with artists because when you're a manager for an artist, you're actually, you know, touching every single facet of the business and you're touching every single, you know, person in the business, whether it's a radio person or, a, I mean, all roads kind of go through you as a manager. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like the, the education is very wide. And it's, it touches most aspects of the business. Um, so I, I love always learning, always, always growing and being able to transfer that knowledge and transfer that experience and those relationships I make to artists I work with and, and, and seeing how that benefits them and protects them and grows them. Right. And so what, what genre do you, um, you lean to? Um, I would say over the years that it's 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 pretty much been wherever the trend goes. Um, so when I first got into the business, and and a lot of this was not a lot of this was not intentional on my part. It's just either location-wise where I was, or kind of what what I, you know the types of artists I started meeting. But I would say when I first got into the business, Britney, Britney Spears was probably the hottest thing. And it seemed like most artists I met, especially the aspiring ones, they all wanted to be Britney Spears. So I think a lot of the stuff I was shopping to labels and a lot of the, the artists I ended up doing, getting development deals with, with labels or getting deals with, they were very pop leaning artists. So um, I think that that's what led me to LA and led me to work with a lot more urban producers and songwriters. And, and then through the urban producers and songwriters, I started meeting more pop artists or more rappers. So that was like a season, which, you know, I still have relationships there. And every once in a while I'll work with an artist that's more pop leaning or probably more Los Angeles leaning. And mm -hmm. then, um, and then once Taylor Swift came out, everything like every single artist I would meet wanted to be Taylor Swift and wanted to be a country singer. And it, it was, it was almost like the same exact girl. It's just the girl like a year before wanted to be a pop singer. And now she wants to be a country singer. So that, uh, during that time, it led me to start laser being focusing more on Nashville and, uh, started making a lot more trips to Nashville, started networking a lot more in Nashville and through that networking and those relationships, that's how I became, um, for a period of time, the head of A&R for Dolly Parton's management company. Mm -hmm. um, and through that, 
you know, I, I got to meet a lot of songwriters and producers and, you know, big, bigger country artists. And, and, um, and then uh, I would say for the last, you know, and obviously those relationships are still there. And every, every once in a while, I'll get involved in something that, you know, is country leaning um, or leans, you know, in that direction. And then uh, when I, I, and this is probably before Billy Ellish, but I would say a few, a couple of years before Billy Ellish, I, I felt a, a lot of the tide was turning more towards an alternative direction, pop alternative direction with Lord. And I would say Lord was kind of what started waking me up to that just person probably a little bit before that but lord really woke me up to okay this is uh this seems to be where things are going mm-hmm. and uh so you know that led me to start laser beam focusing on trying to find writers and producers and people that were more alternative leaning and um and an alternative focused so you know and then i started out years ago that first song i wrote was a christian song um, I was not a Christian back then. I was born and raised Jewish. But uh, when I lived in LA, I actually, for the first time, started reading the Bible. And it uh, it, it really, personally, changed my life. So, um, you know, I, I started desiring to get back into Christian music, I would say, six, seven years ago. And uh, so now I I would say currently, like, the things I'm excited about is I manage an artist that I developed um, named Austin French. Uh, he was on that one season of the TV show called Rising Star that was on ABC television in 2014. He was the runner-up. So I met him right after the show, developed him. Um, we you know, got a record deal, and um, he's now just released online his first single from his second record. But the first record was really successful. He was nominated um, for new artist of the year, um, for the Dove Awards, which is the biggest award show uh, for Mm. Christian music. And then, uh, he had three, three top 10 singles on his first record on Billboard. So, uh, very excited about him and love working with him. I've been working with him for heading on six years. Mm. And then, uh, another girl, uh, Ann Wilson, um, uh, who, uh, also is a Christian singer. Uh, she got signed to Capitol Records as a Christian artist, Capitol Christian, um, in October. So we're working on her first record. Um, and then uh, on the alternative side, uh, there's a guy named Rx Zoll that I developed with partners of mine in LA that we're really excited about. And uh, we have another artist named Mad Fun that's super cool that we're literally just in the process of putting out now. So I, I would say like really, really deep. Um, uh, there's also an Australian artist named Marlo that uh, I developed about a year, started developing about a year and a half ago. And she's, I would say about as close as you can get to signing a deal with Universal in Australia right now. Mm-hmm. So she's been getting pretty heavy rotation on the top two radio stations in Australia. So um, I would say that, and she's she's kind of like a pop alternative artist too. So mm-hmm. I would say that those are those are some of the projects that I'm currently excited about. Great, great. Okay. Uh, can we talk about artist development? Because you brought that up a few different times. You talked about going back a few years, uh, development deals with labels, and then just uh, the uh, Austin French you mentioned, uh, artist development. You know, developing him. Can you, from your perspective, discuss what artist development is and what you do on your end and from the perspective of, of a label, what they may be doing these days? Can you kind of get into that? Yeah, um, I would say one word to sum it all up is uh, exhausting, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm, I'm crazy. Uh, I have one other manager in the business that likes to find artists before anybody else does. And we always talk about the fact that we're both crazy. Um, But uh, I would say that in the beginning stages, uh, it's a couple different aspects. Uh, The first aspect is just the craft. Um, 
I'll start with vocals. You know, do they need a vocal coach? Um, do they need to be working six days a week on their voice? Um, for how long? Um, so what, one aspect that I do is if I'm developing an artist, <clears throat> I'll usually, more times than not, get them with a vocal coach that I know and trust that's gotten good results over the years. But it's also somebody that's affordable. You know, that there are some vocal coaches out there that are super they're great, but they're just super expensive. So try to find somebody reasonable that can deliver the results that I have worked with on artists in the past and, and we have a great working relationship. So could it put you on pause right there just for one sec, then you, yep. then you may yep. continue. So this vocal coach looking for an affordable one, are you asking the artist to pay or are you paying for that and that would be a recoupable expense that you would eventually hopefully earn back that's sort of your investment in the artist or is it artist by artist you may answer uh, it's 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 artist by artist uh mm -hmm. with this artist mad fun uh and rx soul we have a production deal with them so we we basically pay for everything on that stuff um and with uh austin french who you mentioned uh he had two investors um which miraculously we've actually gotten them almost fully paid back uh mm -hmm. but he had two investors in the beginning that were both like family friends of his um so they they formed a production company a, a, a label with me and it was kind of known up front that okay i'm going to be the driver of this and i i'm i have the know-how and I'm not going to put money in, but you guys as, as investors will put the money in. Mm -hmm. So we formed mm -hmm. a company called, around Austin called Awaken Records, um, which everything is released through. Uh, so we have a 50-50 a, a, a deal with his label. Um, Could I ask you a question about that? Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just because sure. this is really good. So you form Awaken Records with these two investors. You're doing the work. They're putting in the money. Is the structure mm -hmm. deal, and you can be general, but is the generally the structure of that deal that they get paid back before you make any money, um, since they're the ones putting in money. Although there's value to what you're doing, so if a dollar comes in, or do they get the full dollar, or do they get ninety cents and you're still getting ten cents, so you could still get a little something? Can you explain sort of your uh, philosophy around that and maybe how that works? Yeah. So in that particular deal. Uh from the record side of things, uh, they get paid back first. Um, and then, you know, we would all, you know, make income from that. But I'm also Austin's manager and we have a really good relationship and there's been a, the relationship was set up very well where they understand that I'm working on this, you know, that this is six, seven days a week. Um, and this is nonstop and I have a staff. And so on the management side, they don't get uh, anything from that, that that comes to me. Uh, but on the record side, which is profitable, um, they, they got paid back first. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just sorry, because I think there's some good stuff here. So it, sure. a dollar comes in. Of revenue, let's say it, let's say it was a either from streaming from Spotify or actually somebody downloaded the song or something like that. So we'll just use a dollar example. Um, they get whatever the royalty is because I, I, there must be a royalty tied to that, and then the management yeah. portion of that then gets its percentage. Um, is that off of the gross that your percentage, or is that off of the net after the royalty? Um, how do you guys? Uh, the, the 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 management gross comes off of what the artist earns. So uh, like the record side is the record label side of things. So we get 50% of what, whatever the record label earns. Um, and that, that's, that's the investor part. And then the management part is, is we get uh, off the gross of what the artist is actually earning. Okay. Off of his. Okay. So it is the two separate things. Okay. I'm sorry. I keep yes. interrupting. No, no, it's great. Um, and then, uh, so, you know, as far as like the artist, you know, the vocals that we were talking about. So I think vocals is a very, very vital, vital part of this. I mean, every artist that I grew up with that I loved as an artist, uh, was very set apart and unique vocally. Um, 
I mean, even, I know this is probably some cheesy examples, but I grew up in the eighties. So, you know, I think about, you know, Paul Stanley from Kiss or Rod Stewart or, uh, uh, you know, Def Leppard or Bon Jovi or uh, Bruce Springsteen or, um, you know, Madonna, like Cher. Like these artists all had voices. They were truly stylists. They, they were truly set apart tone wise. They didn't sound like any other artist. So I think that that's a big part of what uh, I focus on, on the vocal side. Uh, it's not, not necessarily always about perfect technique or being the most accurate singer. It's more about on a record, can you sound like nobody else? Mm -hmm. So I do focus a lot on the stylistic part of things. Uh, and then um, when it comes to songwriting, you know, some artists, most artists I work with can't, couldn't write a hit song on their own. <clears throat> but a couple of artists I work with are, are solid songwriters and some are, you know, not great in the beginning. But a lot of, a lot of uh, kind of the coaching aspect or the teaching aspect of what I do in the beginning is, you know, how do you get to great songs? How do you get to competitive songs? How do you get to unique songs? So I spent a lot of time with artists focusing on song titles, concepts, uh, how to think of concepts, how to think of titles, how to get out of the box, how to take risks. Um, and uh, also if they're gonna be writing with writers and co-writing, there usually is a decent amount of preparation for how to be well-prepared to walk into co-writes um and and make sure and make sure that the artist is actually ready to walk into co-writes and actually impress the room um because one thing i've learned um is that almost like i always use this but always like tom brady elevates the football players around him so you know you could be an average football player but if you're on tom brady's team you're probably a pretty good football player and you may not have been that good if it was a different quarterback. So he's just got this motivational factor about him and a leadership thing that he drives people to be the best that they could be. And I think artists, you know, I think it's very, very difficult to get to a, a song that could trigger a record deal or if you're an established artist, a hit song without being able to walk in the room with co-writers and a producer and excite the room with your either concepts or ideas or titles or vocal ability. Um, I think you have to, you have to make people in every room you walk into say, wow. Mm -hmm. And um, that's, that's the, that's the one aspect that I could, coach up, I could teach, I could push, I could train, I could be patient for, I could, make people wait on things and just dig into their craft every day. But that's the one element that I always tell artists I'm not in control of. Like at the end of the day, you're going to have to walk in the room and win rooms over and win people over. And uh, to me, it starts in the co-writing rooms. It starts with producers. Um, you know, can you get behind the, the microphone in a studio of a producer and really wow them? Cause if you wow them, and you're not signed, you know, most of these writers and producers are signed to labels with publishing deals. So, and they have to turn in their material and they're taught, you know, that th these hotter writers and producers are constantly talking to A&Rs and the A&Rs are always asking. I mean, it, at almost every breakfast, lunch, half the phone calls I do with A&Rs are always asking me like, you work on anything new, anybody new and mm -hmm. anything, anything you have to show me. Um, so, these labels are always asking the people that work closely with them what they're working on. And, uh, you know, if you're the type of artist where you've really worked hard on your craft and you've been educated well and you're coached up well, you know, there, there's a chance that you could walk into a room and really impress the right person at the right time. And that could just be a songwriter and that could lead to a record deal. So, um, you know, th those are things that I really focus on in the beginning. And then eventually, you know, I start 
torturing details of the live show and and making sure the artist comes off as seasoned as possible and knows how to set up songs live and um you know getting an art, artist to a point where they're fearless on stage and look right on stage and dress right on stage and um you know could put on a a very strong live show um, because that's something that in the beginning stages if you're a signed artist that's something that starts spreading around the industry you know booking agencies here other artists here other managers here that this artist is really good live and that's something that could get you you know uh, it's, it's something that could help get opening act slots and and things like that so um, I mean there's so much more to it I would say when, when I'm working closely with an artist for probably the first two, three years, I'm probably sending them information every single day that either inspires me or, you know, I think is a really interesting article or, or a really creative video an artist did. I'm caught, it's, it's an everyday pouring into them um, of just teaching, educating, giving them ideas on things um, and always looking, you know, for opportunities to torture details. Do you have contracts with your artists that you manage or is it handshake deals or artist by artist again? Uh, I, I used to do management contracts. Uh, I think the longer I did it, the more I realized it's, it's simply just relationship based. And if they're going to, if somebody's going to want to walk away, they're going to walk away. Um, you know, so, and I think also two years ago, I was not for good reason. I was not nearly as confident in my managing abilities as I am today. So today I feel, I feel very confident in what I do and how I do it and the relational aspect of it. So um, I, don't, I don't do management contracts with artists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting subject, the idea of manager and the, and the contracts, because I know of uh, people older than us, Jason, who don't do contracts. Um, for basically the same reason that you just said, you know, they said somebody's going to walk away, they're going to walk away. Um, meanwhile, we had an interview years ago with um, Schechter, um, the, the, the guy who had been the former manager of My Chemical Romance. They didn't have a... Wow. And they fired him. And he was able to go back through emails, and he talked about through this on, on our radio show, and he was able to go through emails and see where they had discussed sort of generally sort of percentage of gross that he was going to earn from them so that he could still uh, either get a buyout from them or get something versus you're fired goodbye. Because we right. um, know this guy, Dave Laurie, who used to manage Jeff Buckley, who uh, died around 1990. When was it, Mark? Like 96 or something? Yeah, roughly. Mid, late 90s, Jeff Buckley died. Um, and the mother basically took over and cut out Dave Laurie completely, the manager, and he ended up not making anything. And Jeff Buckley got really big afterwards. Um, so, so it's just really interesting. And there was a contract there and there was a sunset clause there and none of that ended up mattering, you know? So yep. it's an interesting discussion, uh, the philosophy of do I do a contract? Do I not? Am I protecting myself? Am I protecting the artist? Um, and it seems um, like it's still, like I manage a couple of artists, we don't have written contracts either. Um, it almost sounds stupid, yet it also sounds smart. I don't know if that's making any sense, you know, but what do you think? About no, I, no, I think that's incredible. Um, I will say that usually, and I, I, I can't even, prob I probably need time to explain why I do things this way, but usually with alternative artists um i'm just being very transparent usually with the alternative artists i work with you know i i just understand that business more and and uh understand the business more in this fact that more more understand of the character of the people that are in that business and surround that business so uh i'll say that when I'm working with Christian artists, um, I know all the managers, um, you know, not saying that everybody's perfect, nobody's perfect, but 
I just know that when I have the right artist and we form that bond, I know what the other managers can bring to the table. I know what their selling features would be over mine. And I just, you know, obviously there's always somebody bigger out there. There's always somebody that maybe at a given time can offer somebody something more. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I, I guess in a sense, I kind of weigh out what is that something more and how inclined would the artists I work with be to be lured by that. And, uh, I guess in, in my mind, I've done those calculations and I don't, I don't really foresee what anyone else has that might at any given moment be more appealing than what I bring to the table. I, I haven't calculated that as a reason that anybody would ever leave, leave me. Um, so, but it, on the alternative side, I know a lot of managers and I know a lot of people in the business and there is definitely more, um, there's a little bit more ambulance chasing in that business mm-hmm. on the, on that side of the business. And there's a little bit more uh, poaching. I would say so. Usually what I do with alternative acts is if I really want to progress the relationship and I'm really serious about an artist, uh, we'll usually do a a production deal at that point. So I guess in a sense, you know, I'm not as contract free as my first answer was (laughs) after your response. It kind of made me think. Uh, But, you know, I would say that there's just certain types of artists, certain artists that I, I have a relation. Like I was actually just talking to a Christian artist the other day who has, is in a, is in a deal with Doug Morris on the mainstream side mm-hmm. with his record, record label 12 tone. And, but this artist wants to be a Christian artist. And so he was referred to me and he said, you know, he's got this other guy in the business for about a year that's been courting him as a manager and really wants to work with him as manager, but he's not really on the Christian side of things. So I said to him, I said, look, if you just work with me, just me and my, my staff, my team, there's no management agreement. Um, But if you want me to think about partnering with this other manager person, you know, first of all, I'd have to really get to know your partner, you know, your, your friend and your potential Mm -hmm. manager. Uh, I'd have to really get to know him pretty well to, make that decision if I want to get involved. But if I did get involved in that, I would have to have a contract. So I guess it's, you know, it's probably a little bit more on a case by case basis than I first thought in my first answer to you. Well, speaking of co-managing, have, do you know many examples in your experience that where it's worked, where you've had two people managing an artist? Cause I know a few examples where it has not, Worked, yeah, I, I know, mean, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen a few examples, and I've been a part of a few examples. Uh, so there's, I would say, two examples I can think of that I've seen from the outside that I was not involved with the artist, uh, but I knew the managers, and then two different examples where I've been a part of. And I would say that, in a sense, it, what I've seen on all four occasions is it worked for a season, um, but didn't work long term. Um, so yeah, I, I guess like, if, like a long-term serious, like one manager, one artist, they're in it together forever kind of thing. I've, I've not seen that with co-managing. Yeah, I would, th- I, th- I would think that'd be tough just because unless the two co-managers, like you mentioned, know each other well enough and are able enough knowing here are my strengths, here are his or her strengths together where you know, one plus one equals three uh, versus we're always kind of, I don't want to say have an agenda, you know, but kind of industry stuff that kind of drove you to the brink a while ago. I can see that being there and it's, it's just always sort of like not fighting, but we're each not pushing each other in a positive way and it doesn't necessarily work out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, also too, for me, there's a certain times where, um, you know, cause I really, really, really try to be very involved, deeply involved in my artists' lives. Like I try as much as possible to know their families and be close to their families and, and also know 
where they're at in life, you know, financially. And um, so I, I try to be very deeply involved and, you know, not, not once an artist has gotten off the ground and is doing really well, but, you know, as you know, from the moment an artist gets a record deal to the moment that there's a shot for there to be really any strong income coming in. I mean, it's, it's at least two, three, four years, um, you know, with the album cycle and songs hitting. And then six months later, the industry kind of catches up to that song really hit. And this is a hot artist. I mean, it's such a long process. So there's times in that first two, three, four years where I might feel on something, you know, I'm not going to take commission for this, or I'm going to let this go and make sure the artist is okay financially, or, yeah, I know they're in a little bit of a tight spot right now. And Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not going to, I'm not going to take money on that. And one of the, one of the struggles I've always had with partners is, you know, it's kind of like I get, I get a very clear vision of what I think the artist needs at that moment. And, uh, most, most managers that I've partnered with, you know, the, the couple of situations I've had over the years, there was always finances being brought up of like, you know, I'm, I'm giving money away or, uh, you know, why aren't we making more on this or, you know, and, and those, those are the kinds of conversations that, you know, I'd rather not have. And, and that's actually what I told this artist the other day. I said, you know, one thing is I, I don't want to be, if I feel led that, you know, I'm not supposed to take a mission on something. I don't want to have to sit there for 30 minutes to an hour explaining myself to another person on, on why I'm, I need to do that. So uh, th- th- I think that that's always been one area of tension. And I think also too, for me at least, you know, I, I get very involved on the record making side, probably a lot more than most managers because I do have a songwriting background and uh, I've just, I grew up in studios and so I get really involved with producers on records and, and do I'm not going to say I'm like this great A&R cause I'm not, but I definitely have at moments instincts and certain things that I hear on records that others are not hearing. And uh, so I, I would say that, you know, with a management partner, I might, th- there might be some pushback of, how involved are they with the label and, you know, things like that. It's interesting. Now, um, two things. Um, so it's interesting that we're speaking today because uh, I was on Twitter this morning and uh, there was this thread of, of tweets. It was uh, whatever it was, but uh, in the tweets, uh, somebody included a screenshot of a tweet by Kevin Sorbo, who- Oh uh, yeah, I, I, actually, I, I know Kevin. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. the funny thing is, so I haven't thought of Kevin Sorbo in a number of years. And um, yeah, I know him from television, you know, playing Hercules. And um, so then the funny thing is I go to uh, your, you have an agency called Higher Level. H- higher Level, yeah. top today was Kevin Sorbo, who in like three hours, I'm hit with images of Kevin Sorbo. And I just thought that was a really funny, interesting coincidence that uh, that happened. So do you want to talk about, not Kevin Sorbo necessarily, but your agency, higher level, and what you guys are doing there? Sure. We, we actually, last week, we just booked Kevin uh, a pretty huge, uh, well, for speakers, a pretty huge speaking uh, arrangement. So um, I think he, we booked him we're speaking in front of 15,000 people uh, last week. So uh, we were just literally, we were just talking to him over the last week. Uh, but we, uh, we, me and a partner of mine, we have a booking agency and we book artists and speakers. Um, I would say that we've probably uh, had more success booking speakers um, for, for, you know, as far as like the fee level and, and things like that. But um, I mean, we, we've booked speakers for, you know, up to 20, 30 grand, sometimes a little bit more um, for one speaking engagement. So, um, uh, but yeah, we also do book artists too. I just think we, we've tended to have more success with speakers. So you could actually right now, even though let's say you just focus on artists, you'd be really hurting because 
it's hard to get a band to play anywhere right now just because of what's going on. Um, yet, if you're doing speakers, I would think you could, like you, you have Daryl Strawberry, you know, I'm a, I'm a big yeah. fan, you know, you have Daryl Strawberry, or you mentioned Kevin Sorbo or, or some other people. Um, you almost could get them to do, uh, what, what do you call it, uh, motivational meetings, you know, jump on a, a Zoom meeting uh, of, of this company, you know, that this person is having with their, you know, 20 people sales staff and let them come on and do talk for half an hour about empowerment and motivation during this time and, you know, work hard and all that kind of stuff from home. I mean, it sounds like there would still be opportunities for you guys to um, still book. And you mentioned Kevin Sorbo, obviously for an arena, but um, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. We've also, we've also been able to book on the higher level side of things, but also as a manager, you know, my artists have also been doing, um, online concerts mm -hmm. and uh actually done better than i thought you could probably do with it um so i mean we we've had uh we've experimented over the last couple of months with doing some concerts that are literally ticketed online where you you buy a ticket online and uh yeah i i was surprised how many people bought tickets and it did very well um what was this a lot of was that a like a private Zoom show and you gave the link after they bought the ticket and it was a protected link or something? Exactly. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um and it was a it was a code that they had. Uh but that organizationally that took a tremendous amount of work. Um, you know, just you know, all the art all the uh musicians in the band had to pre record all their parts and it, it was it was pretty involved to, to pull it off, but it, it did work. And then um also with Christian artists, they've been getting uh, not not a lot, and it's it's a lot crazy lower financially than normal guarantees. But they've been getting booked to you know lead worship on for online church services or uh, speak you know during online church services. So, so that's been something I I didn't think would really happen, but has has happened. Um, but uh, that, that's interesting. Um, we're sort of running closer to hitting the clock, but uh, a couple things I just want to throw out because you juggle a lot of stuff. So, and we've, we've kind of covered some of this stuff, but um, for companies that you are involved with, you mentioned, we talked about higher level. There's 117 Entertainment. There's also Radar Label Group and there's Noble Management. Can you kind of get into those three and how you juggle all of that and not just keep, you know, from a mental health perspective, how you keep it all aligned, but also um, from a priority standpoint with those companies, how you keep it so um, your everything is in alignment and nobody's getting the short, you know, short version of you. Sure. Uh, well, it's actually probably a lot simpler than it would look. Um, so with higher level, it's a partnership. So I pretty much just bring in the talent. So, you know, you mentioned Kevin Sorbo and Daryl Strawberry. Those were both relationships of mine that I brought to the table. Um, you know, to be very open with you, uh, uh, after those, after those relationships. So, I mean, what I, what I did with higher levels, I brought them the talent that was bookable. Um, I helped them build out a little bit on their booking staff so they could be more efficient and, and have more outreach for the talent. Um, to be really open after bringing them talent and, and helping build their, their staff, um, I really haven't done a whole lot else. Um, I, I'm talking to uh, you know, the, the people that are running it constantly, I mean, it's probably almost every day, but I'm really in, in almost none of the details. Um, and, uh, so, so that, that's actually for, I'll say this for a season, I worked unbelievably hard on that. Um, you know, I would say there was, there was a solid close to a year where I was heavily focused on building that. And it was something I was focused on achieving things or a to-do list for it every single day. 
and then it kind of got to a point where it started working. Um, th there was a, a CEO of a really huge radio chain in, in the U.S. that I was talking to. Um, when was it? I think it was around Christmas time this year. And I asked him because, I mean, he's, I think they have, uh, his chain has close to 300 stations around the country. And he's the CEO of it, which is really, I mean, it's a huge position. <clears throat> so I asked him, I was like, how do you, how do you, I asked him to say, like, how do you juggle that? Like, how do you manage 300 radio stations and all the employees and staff? And, and he, and he said to me, he goes, uh, Jason, it's, uh, it's, he goes, I go off. And I don't know if you've heard of this. I had not heard of this. But it, it's it's called three three D's a three D's concept. So he said you you design it, you delegate it, and then you disappear. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I mean it, that really hit me, and and that's kind of what I did with higher level. You know, design it, delegate it, and just don't get caught up in the details of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, with uh 117 i have a staff so we work with a lot of songwriters producers and we also do develop artists um through that company um i have a staff of four full-time people that help me um so i am involved in details but i'm not i'm not really doing a lot of the grunt work i mean i did the grunt work for years and i've everything that pe different people do for me i've done myself over the years very intensely, but these days I try to delegate the majority of everything. So, so Noble Management is a management company that I formed on, for the Christian genre. So, uh, you know, Austin and Ann right now, we manage. I have a team, uh, three other people that help me. Um, I, do, I do most of the interaction with the record label and the booking and and obviously talk to the artist constantly, but I have a team of three people that help me with um, just some of the touring aspects and just merchandise aspects, things that become very overwhelming, at least on my end is, is touring and merchandise. So I, I have people that help me with that. Uh, but, uh, usually what I'm doing is, is finding an artist, developing them, um, and uh, either helping getting them a record deal or, uh, or, or my partners do. But usually the day-to-day -day management of those artists, I'm not doing. Um, so it's actually, it is busy. Uh, I am very busy, but I also have quite a bit of help. And I've got um, a few partnerships where I don't do a lot of the heavy lifting in those partnerships. Uh, maybe for seasons I do. Um, so that, that's, the, that's how I can manage everything. Well, great. Well, we appreciate you managing the time to sit with us today on Music Biz. Yeah. And, more. and uh, by the way, big shout out to Jesse Wilder from uh, yeah. uh, Higher Level who set this up for us. So thanks very much to him too. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys are great. Good. Yes. Incredible right. questions. Mostly from me, Marconi. Probably the ratio of incredible questions was 90% um, of mine were incredible and probably 60% of Marconi's we're incredible. <laughs> right. really how That's goes. true, but I woke you up because I held up the first 35 minutes of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> that is true because I, I, I slept late today. So, yes, yeah. it took a while for my Starbucks to hit my head. So. No, it was great. And I, th I especially liked the part where you talked about how you can um, take over the early part of the career and that somebody has to light up a room. And so many kids yes. are in their room with their you know, composing on their own computer and so on, and don't realize that that's so important. Yeah. And I, was, I was on Epic Records in the early, uh, early 70s, and that was a whole thing, you know, live, and we were a great live band. <clears throat> and actually, we had uh, a drummer named Joe English, who became a very big Christian artist. Uh, yeah. yeah. After that, and still is, uh, still got a great voice. But anyway, that whole idea of being live, and doing it live and wowing them, leaving them wanting more, and all those adages are correct, and you just uh, reinforce that, that that's so important. So thank you, Jason. Thank you for all that. We do appreciate it. All right, he's 
frozen up. He knows we appreciate him and we appreciate you, our listeners, for me listening to Music Biz 101 and more. So at the end of every show, we do not say hello. Dr. Esteban, what do we say at the end of every show? No, we do say Arvidashen in Espanol, which okay. to you who like the Espanol word of adios, it is adios! Situation. You're losing hope, I'm losing patience